When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. everyone we begin the readout tonight with the second high-profile mass shooting in the united states in less than a week a shooting in a boulder colorado supermarket on monday afternoon that killed 10 people including the first responding officer as well as a 25 year old store worker and a 61 year old man who will never meet his expectant grandchild all of this as a community in the atlanta area continues to mourn the eight people six of them asian women killed at three spas just six days ago Border police have identified Ahmad al-Alawi Alisa as the gunman. He's in custody and charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. Today, in the face of this gruesome epidemic, President Biden called for immediate action. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common-sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. The United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House pass bills that close loopholes in the background check system. This is not, it should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives. And we have to act. And there's arguably no other politician who has more experience dealing with this particular issue than Joseph Robinette Biden. Not only did he serve as vice president of the United States during some of the deadliest mass shootings in our nation's history during the Obama years, but in 1994, decades before that, then-Senator Joe Biden helped to pass legislation that prohibited the manufacture of certain semi-automatic weapons for civilian use. The assault weapons ban phased out in 2004 under a 10-year sunset provision, with numerous lawmakers, including Biden, trying and failing to get it renewed. The ban was folded into the 1994 anti-crime bill. Yes, the same crime bill that expanded mandatory minimum sentences and increased federal funding for police departments and prisons. That crime bill. And ironically, that bill, which also included the Biden-authored Violence Against Women Act, would later haunt Biden and Hillary Clinton as mass incarceration became a leading issue during their presidential bids. That bill passed nearly 30 years ago during a very different Congress and a vastly different political climate. But here we are tonight asking again with new urgency whether this country will ever again address the unique American problem of gun violence. And once again, it boils down to action. America awoke today to another nightmare, stunning, shocking, savage, but unsurprising because this kind of horror is thoroughly predictable as long as Congress fails to act. We need to do more than reflect. We need to act. We need to show that we care and prevent the next mass shooting if we can. Now, of course, we know this story all too well. We have seen it on our televisions far too many times. We've mourned the lives lost, feeling outrage over the lack of action, while knowing that in some parts of the country, it's easier to buy a gun than it is to vote. And now Congress looks and feels very different boasting gun-obsessed conservatives who display their weapons as their Zoom backgrounds and campaign as Second Amendment warriors. This is what we're up against. 
So we ask, as we've asked each and every time this happens, when will this end? Joining me now is Colorado State Senator Rhonda Fields and Brandon Wolf, Pulse nightclub survivor and vice president of the Drew Project. Thank you both for being here. And I want to start uh, with you, State Representative um, Fields. Yeah, I, I grew up in Colorado. I always knew lots of people had yes. guns. Um, we, you know, Columbine happened. There have been all of these incidents, the Aurora nightclub shooting. Colorado's a gunny state. It didn't seem like a, you know, wackily gunny state when I was growing up, but it is. Um, there's a, there's a, an analysis that shows in 2019, Denver posted an analysis that showed that Colorado, my growing up state, has had more mass shootings per capita than all but four states in the country. The census-designated Denver Metropolitan right. Statistical Area had more school shootings per capita since 1999 than any of the country's 24 other largest metro areas. What in the hell is going on in Colorado? I wish I knew. Um, I really wish I knew what was really going on because we have some very strong gun safety measures in the state of Colorado, but we have people committing homicide and suicide with these assault weapons and guns and rifles and whatever they can get their hands on. And well, and, and I changed your I changed which house you're in your state senator. Um, so I apologize for that, Senator. Just to ask you. So there was actually an assault weapons ban. You know, Colorado actually did was kind of proactive after some of these mass school shootings yes. and passed some yes. laws, including an assault weapons ban. It was supposed to stop mass shootings. Um, it was blocked 10 days before this particular attack. Not that it necessarily would have stopped it. A judge ruled that Boulder could not enforce the 2018 ban on assault style weapons and large capacity magazines that was put in place following the Parkland school shooting. The judge said the city couldn't restrict firearms that are otherwise mm -hmm. legal under state and federal law. Is there an attack, sort of a reversal of what had been pretty good, a pretty good record for the state of Colorado on trying to pass gun reform? Right. And in fact, we do have an assault weapon ban in Denver. So the mayor there has um, and the city council has uh, an assault weapon ban. But it's, it's a patched approach. So all across Colorado, it's not the same. And the same across our nation. We can have people go across borders and, and, and buy uh, these assault weapons. And we need really like the uh, the Congress people were talking for people to catch up with what's going on in our communities. It's time for Congress to act. Let's, uh, yeah, a, a federal solution would really seems like it is called for. Brandon, my friend, thank you for being here. I want you to, you know, it, Joe Biden, President Biden today said it shouldn't be a political issue. But of course it is. Of course it is. And, he, and let me just let you listen to some of the senators during today's gun violence hearing. Some of the Republicans. And every time there's a shooting, we play this ridiculous theater. Where this committee gets together and proposes a bunch of laws that would do nothing to stop these murders. Not only does it not reduce crime, it makes it worse. We have a lot of drunk drivers in America that kill a lot of people. We ought to, we ought to try to combat that too. The answer is not to get rid of all sober drivers. That, that, that's dumb. Uh, Ted, John, Senator John Kennedy got $215,000 from the NRA. Ted Cruz has gotten 176274 in recent cycles. Brandon, the NRA is weakened. They're like crippled. Why do they still seem to exert so much control over Republican politicians? Well, I don't even know if that's the answer anymore. I think Republican politicians have sold themselves out to the furthest right wing of their party, and they essentially function as a Twitter troll operation. 
Um, I want to tell your viewers a quick story, actually. In 2019, I became the first survivor of the Pulse nightclub shooting to testify before a congressional committee. That committee was chaired by uh, the late Congressman John Lewis, and I was very, very honored to, to share my story there. I poured my hearts out. I, I told parts of that story that had previously been way too hard for me to share because this is a matter of life and death. I felt it that important to share. And after I left it all on the table, the ranking Republican member of that committee had the audacity to say to me, rather than ask members of Congress what they can do for you, what are you doing to make your own community safer? Well, the truth is that I took that to heart. I went home and I worked tirelessly to give Democrats control of Congress in 2020. And I tell you that because I'm not going to play the phony outrage game with Republican lawmakers who would sooner see our democracy overthrown than someone have to pass a background check for a gun they bought online. It is far past time for America to move forward. Republican legislators can join the majority of their constituents in that work whenever they're ready. But so long as they're intent on just stomping their feet and obstructing progress and and looking for the next viral tweet, then we're just going to have to do it without them. Yeah, That's you know, right. and it's it's sort of been an Alex Jonesification, right, of the Republican Party, um, Senator. I mean, you've got Lauren Boebert, who uses like a bunch of big old guns as her Zoom background. And she tweeted out today, oh, thoughts and prayers for the on the shooting and got this used by Jamel Hill because it's like you you did do that background. Is, is somebody like her in politics in Colorado hurting the effort? Absolutely. Um, it's not helpful at all. And uh, we definitely need federal leadership. I mean, Colorado has done some great things, but we need to make sure that Congress is acting right now. In the state of Colorado, after Columbine, we closed the uh, the gun show loophole. We have universal background checks. We have two pieces of legislation that is making its way um, through the chambers, which is um, gun safe storage and also how to uh, report a stolen gun. So we're still working on some things. But I do think that at some point we need to ban assault weapons. That seems logical. Colorado State Senator Rhonda Fields, Brandon Wolf, I wish we had more time. Thank you both for being here. And with us now is Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. And, you know, you're you're trying uh, the state of Pennsylvania is trying to do something to sort of get rid of these like ghost guns, guns that you have to put together afterwards that do get around uh, the loopholes, you know, for background checks, checks, et cetera. You know, is it is it going to be we just heard the state senator from Colorado say the state is trying to pass things. Is this still going to come down to the state doing all the work here on gun reform? Well, look, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration is going to take action. They've said they want to, and I take them at their word. Um, But we're not waiting on Washington. There are some common sense things we can do right now that are going to save lives in in our states. And you mentioned ghost guns, Joy. I I brought a ghost gun with me. This is a ghost gun. You can go and buy a ghost gun at a gun show in Pennsylvania or online. And in fact, people were going to gun shows in Pennsylvania and buying these things by the duffel bags. And then they were taking them back to Philadelphia, assembling them and selling them on the streets for 100% profit. Now, why are these particularly dangerous? Because when you go to a gun show to buy one of these, you don't have to go through a background check. And furthermore, they're unserialized and untraceable. And they are now the weapon of choice for criminals in our communities. And so we stepped up and we did something about it. We negotiated with the largest gun show promoter in Pennsylvania, and he agreed to stop selling these at his gun shows. And in doing so, he is keeping 36,000 of these, we estimate, just this year alone, 
off the streets of our communities. This is a weapon that you can buy if you're a criminal, and we have to close that loophole. We have to close the ghost gun loophole. You know, it, you know, part of your job, I mean, it, it is a political job. Can you just explain what could be, and, and have you talked, I don't know, with the senators, like people like Pat Toomey and other Republicans, what is their justification now? The NRA is, is basically crippled. They're broke. They're trying to reassemble themselves in, Cal- in, in Texas, but they don't wield the kind of power that they used to. Can you explain or do you understand what the objection is to something like what you just said, which seems pretty common sense? Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. It's Monday it's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. That's exactly the word I was going to use. It is common sense, and it's going to save lives. And understand that the gun show promoter that we worked with, he's a very strong Second Amendment supporter. And you know what? We can support our Constitution and support public safety. This is a great example of that. We've identified a problem. We know it exists, and we're trying to solve it. Understand that politicians, some politicians in Washington and Harrisburg and other state capitals, they are making a choice to allow this violence to continue. They're making a choice and saying it's okay to shoot up a synagogue in Pittsburgh or a spa in Atlanta or a shopping market in Boulder or on the streets of Philadelphia every single night. I refuse to accept this as a new normal. I refuse to make that same choice to do nothing. I can't explain their inaction. You know, it's gotta be a combination of political fear and just an unwillingness to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work necessary to save lives. You know, the NRA tried to tweet out today thinking they were dropping the mic, tweeting out the the text of the Second Amendment. The text of the Second Amendment includes the words well-regulated, and it talks about militias. It it is irrelevant to gun reform um, from what, you know, is being talked about in places like in, in Congress, in the United States Senate, and in the House. Would you like to see the United States Senate Get rid of the filibuster in order to pass what like 70 percent of even Republicans want universal background checks. Do you think that the Senate should just dead the filibuster so that they can actually pass it? If you're telling me that the inaction that is causing the loss of life every single day in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania can be fixed by doing away with the filibuster, then hell yeah, do away with the filibuster. It's a vestige of a Senate from yesteryear that has rendered it unable to solve the big pressing problems of the day. We need to get these ghost guns and these other weapons of war out of the hands of criminals. We should all agree on that. And if the filibuster is the thing that's holding it up, then let's get rid of that filibuster immediately. Thank you very much. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, really appreciate you being here 
tonight and keeping it real. And up next on The Readout, President Biden confronts the humanitarian challenge at the border, while on the right, they're using racist phrases like lower level of human being to describe the men, women, and children seeking asylum in America. Nice. And call it the Tucker Carlson defense. Remember when Fox News lawyers argued that no one should actually believe what Tucker says on his show? I mean, come on. Now, another Republican is making a similar argument in court that no reasonable person will think that anything she said was truthful. But the truth is, she is tonight's absolute worst. Plus, Senator Amy Klobuchar joins me on voting rights and Mayor Muriel Bowser on D.C. statehood. It is a big show tonight. The readout continues after this. Stay right there. If you've been watching TV over the past couple of weeks, you've probably heard a familiar Republican talking point about the situation at the southern border. There's no other way to claim it than a Biden border crisis. This is Joe Biden's crisis. He created it by his policies. It's a crisis that's unfolding. It's getting worse and worse every day. Eventually, it's going to be a national security crisis because they're children today, but they could easily be terrorists tomorrow. With the grand Q party now confronting a president who just passed a massive and popular piece of legislation, that is what they're left with. Yes, migration at the southern border is a genuine political challenge, an ongoing one that spans several previous administrations. But is it a crisis, as Republicans so desperately want the media to portray it as? Well, according to an analysis in The Washington Post, the current increase in apprehensions fits a predictable pattern of seasonal changes in undocumented immigration combined with a backlog of demand because of 2020's coronavirus border closure. Adding to the current situation, longstanding issues of poverty and gang and cartel violence in the Northern Triangle countries in Central America, Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala. Some of it fueled, by the way, by drug demand here in America. Add add to that... Devastation from natural disasters. The region was battered by two hurricanes last November. And voila, shock of all shocks. People start moving to try to save their lives and their children's lives. Now, indeed, the Biden administration has faced some deserved scrutiny, in particular over transparency regarding facilities currently housing migrant children. Just because Republicans are attacking them disingenuously doesn't mean the public doesn't have an interest in seeing what's happening inside those facilities. And so today, Customs and Border Protection released new images from two temporary facilities processing migrant kids along the border. But for Republicans, their caterwauling is not about concern for those children. Let's just be clear. Those children are just a prop for fear-mongering and doing the old brown scare, as evidenced by what you heard from Lindsey Graham earlier. And perhaps the most repugnant example was dished out by Fox News' Jeanine Pirro, who used to be a judge a frightening thought in and of itself, who last night once again stoked nativist and frankly racist false claims about migrant children. The bringing of these children into this country where they will be forever connected to a cartel is slavery. What we're doing here is we are promoting a lower level of human being who will be controlled from other countries. Mm -hmm. A lower level of human being. Joining me now, Victoria DeFrancesco Soto, Assistant Dean of the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. I just want to let you have a, have at the Janine Pirro, lower level, lower level of human being. 
Joanne, I was saddened, but not surprised. As someone who is focused on immigration for decades, those are the same words that were used with European immigrants, with Southern and Eastern European immigrants. Really, this is where the eugenics movement started in Ellis Island, where they would take immigrants who were coming over and figuring out that they were lower, lower level and not letting them come in. So this is not new. And the other thing that is not new is knowing that immigration is something that stokes so much emotion in people. And it's very easy. It's low hanging fruit in terms of taking it when you want to distract, when you want to pivot and use that. And I think this is what we see the GOP doing. Is there a crisis at the border? Look, We've had a crisis when it comes to the border and the immigration system for going on a decade. We're well overdue for a comprehensive immigration reform. So, yes, it is a crisis. Yes. But it's a crisis that we've been living in for close to a decade, Joanne. More than a decade. I mean, you, you can go all the way back. You know, there's a great piece uh, in the week where they put a chart up that I just want to put up on the screen. OK, if you if you call the crisis the number of apprehensions, if you want to go by that, because they're making it sound like a million people are at the border. Look at the side of the chart that is on my left stage right. The year 2000, we're talking about in 2001, you had more than 200,000 a month. That was during the George W. Bush era. OK, keep going. You can go all the way through. It goes up. It goes down. It's seasonal. Up. It goes down. Up. It goes down. Up. It goes down. Look where we are now in 2021. We are not anywhere near. We are less than half of the level of people who are coming in in early in 2000. So no, it's not a crisis. We need immigration reform. Talk a little bit about the logistics here, because we talk about this on the show as sort of there's a challenge of the start of it, right? The, the, the triangle countries who, by the way, some of it is are doing that has put them in this horrible situation. We aren't giving enough aid. They have issues with COVID. All sorts of issues are happening there. Then you have the problem of the choke point. When you get to the border, what the hell do you do with people who are stuck and backing up because of the last four years of terrible policy? And now they know their kids won't be taken. So they're like, okay, maybe I can try. And then where do you put people? Because you can't just take a kid and send them off on their own. You got to process them and have them go somewhere safe. Sorry, I just talked myself out. <laughs> Tell me what you think we, we could be doing differently. What, what you just laid out is the multi-layered nature of the problem. When we're talking about immigration, it's about the push and the pull factors. And there is no one push factor of folks coming from Central America. It's instability when it comes to their economy, to the gang violence, to the economic instability that's triggered by climate change. We have seen since yes. 2014 El Nino and La Nina being much more severe. This is causing more droughts in the highlands of Guatemala. Your subsistence farmers no longer have anything to subsist on. So they're coming over. With the hurricanes, we saw the sharecroppers who lived off the land. Their crops were wiped out. And do the calculus. If you're a rational actor, human beings take a cost-benefit analysis. If I stay here, I'm going to starve. If I don't stay here, I might have a chance of making it and surviving and thriving. Any Republican would do the same thing for their family. And this is what this nation was built on, on immigrants coming for a better life. The Irish did it in the 1840s. The Germans did it in the 1870s. That's how Donald Trump's family got here. They didn't come over here just for kicks. They came over here because they were pushed here and pulled here by opportunity and by problems back home. The same reason that it populated this country. Let me play Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz. Here they are. 
Now the Biden administration is importing COVID into the state of Texas, yeah. exposing more Texans to that. And who knows on what we're going to see. What I care about is stop right. making the problem worse, stop releasing people who are COVID yeah. positive, stop putting kids in harm's way, and stop releasing criminals that prey on the community. It is gross to me for Greg Abbott to portray people as basically disease carriers because they come from Central America. But I just have to get your thoughts on Ted, Rafael Ted Cruz, who himself is a person of color, to participate in that. Your thoughts. He is, Joanne, but he has never embraced that identity. In fact, I would I would argue that he is um, pushed back against his Latino identity. And I think the, the trickier part here is that in framing his dad's immigration to the United States from Cuba, he always is very clear to point out that he was a political refugee, that he came here hmm. fighting communism. He didn't want to be in that communist bastion that was Cuba. He came to the U.S. So he uses a very different frame to separate himself from immigrants who are coming as a result of uh, economic reasons or the plight that we're seeing in Central America. So it's been always interesting to see how Ted Cruz has separated himself from his immigrant experience and when pushed, you know, puts the difference of his dad and other immigrants. Yeah, but he also didn't defend his dad when Donald Trump said that his dad was part of killing uh, JFK. He didn't even defend the man. He basically was like, yes, Donald Trump. Yes, Donald Trump. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. More, sir. Uh, Victoria, that was me, not not Victoria. Francesco Soto is lovely and not shady like me. Thank you very much for saying that uh, and appreciate your time tonight. And still ahead, Senator Amy Klobuchar. I mean, come on. Senator Amy Klobuchar on voting rights and the filibuster and D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser will be here on the push for statehood. Very important discussion. But first... Release the Kraken. We release tonight's absolute worst. I think you will agree tonight's nominee is truly worthy. Stay with us. Remember former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell? Well, she's back in the news and not in a good way. You might recall that for weeks after November 3rd, Powell hurled wild accusations of voter fraud, including the bogus claim that the former president was the victim of a rigged election. Most of her conspiracy theories centered around Dominion Voting Systems, a company that manufactured some of the election equipment used in November. Never mind that there was no actual evidence of fraud. Night after night, Powell relentlessly targeted Dominion in press conferences and on right-wing news. Dominion operators went in and injected votes and changed the whole system. They run a computer algorithm on it as needed to either flip votes, take votes out, or alter the votes to make a candidate win. It has been used all over the world to defy the will of people who wanted freedom. There is statistical evidence. There is all kinds of mathematical evidence, uh, essentially forensic evidence. Dominion and its minions and other state officials everywhere are apparently out there trying to destroy everything they can get to before we can seize it. They had this all planned, Maria. It is one huge, huge criminal conspiracy. But according to Powell, the conspiracy against Trump didn't just involve Dominion. No, no. It was an international syndicate of globalists, communists, corporations and ghosts, including the ever-present right-wing boogeyman George Soros, Hillary Clinton and the very, very dead Hugo Chavez. Descansa en paz, señor Chavez.
Powell famously promised to release the Kraken in a flurry of lawsuits that would finally prove her claims once and for all. I can hardly wait to put forth all the evidence we have collected on Dominion, starting with the fact it was created to produce altered voting results in Venezuela for Hugo Chavez. I'm going to release the Kraken. But it turns out, and this is going to shock you, the Kraken wasn't real after all. The last of Powell's lawsuits were thrown out by the conservative majority U.S. Supreme Court earlier this month. Even the beer guy couldn't help Donald out. And instead of the vindication she so badly sought, Powell was slapped with a $1.3 billion lawsuit by none other than Dominion Voting Systems. In other words, she's now in serious legal jeopardy. And that brings us to the news of this week, because despite all of her allegations and her frivolous legal challenges and the blatant disinformation campaign she led before an audience of millions, Sidney Powell is now casting her statements in a very different light. Powell responded to the lawsuit by saying that, I mean, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements she made about Dominion were truly statements of fact. In other words, the people to blame for taking the former lawyer to the president of the United States seriously were those in the MAGA base who believed her, some of whom hauled off and stormed the Capitol. Hey, guys, I think she's calling y'all suckers. And if her legal strategy sounds familiar, that's because it's the same argument Fox News made to defend Tucker Carlson in a lawsuit last year. In that case, a judge ruled that Carlson is not stating actual facts about the topics he discusses on live TV every night. An interesting revelation for those who watch his TV show. So like her right-wing brethren at Fox, Sidney Powell wants a free pass to not only make baseless accusations with impunity, but to also file them in court. And that is what makes Sidney Powell the absolute worst. The last president to sign meaningful gun legislation was Bill Clinton in the 90s. Since that time, the rate of gun violence in America has exceeded all other developed countries on Earth. Earlier this month, the House of Representatives passed two bills to help address gun violence. But here's the problem. There is zero chance that Republicans will join Democrats in passing those bills, just like there is zero chance Republicans will join Democrats in passing the For the People Act, a federal voting reform and anti-corruption bill, or the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Two additional bills the House recently passed. In other words, progress in America today hinges on a feckless Republican Party parked in the Senate minority that is devoid of ideas and clinging to the filibuster, a monument to white supremacy. Historians do not agree. It has no racial history. This is all about a power grab. The filibuster forces compromise, and this is what Republicans did when they were in the majority in both the House and the Senate and holding the White House. I certainly hope that there are enough wise and thoughtful Democrats who understand that doing away with the legislative filibuster would create a nuclear winter in the United States Senate. This morning, a national civic engagement group led by former First Lady Michelle Obama, Jennifer Lopez, Billie Eilish and others called on Congress to pass the For the People Act. It's a concerted effort to put star power to use, to increase public pressure on the senators who have the power to pass these popular bills. And for more, I'm joined now by Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. And Senator, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you used to be a skeptic about getting rid of the filibuster. What changed your mind? A wise and thoughtful senator. I was just listening to Senator Thune's words, and <laughs> I think we need to change badly in that place. So go on. <laughs> 
Yeah, sorry about that. Yes, thank you. I didn't mean to step on you. But yeah, I guess, you know, you used to be skeptical about changing the filibuster, but you've made a hard turn on that. What 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 triggered your change of heart on that? I think it was the winter that uh, Senator Thune referred to, that we have not been able to get anything major done, uh, short of a national disaster when we have the pandemic upon us. Uh, Then people may scurry and scrum together and get things done, but we have major, major issues before us. And one of them, this will be the first time, thanks to the uh, Senator Warnick and Senator Ossoff and their wins in Georgia, uh, that we're going to be able to have the gavel and we're going to have a hearing, I am in the Rules Committee, on the For the People Act. Uh, while in Georgia and other states across the country, over 200 bills introduced to try to dismantle voting rights. It's literally what they thought is, okay, we lost the national election, record number of people vote. We're going to not change our message or try to reach out to people, say the Republicans. Instead, we're going to double down on that message at CPAC. And then let's just make sure less people vote. I think Warnock said it best in his maiden speech. What this is about is some people don't want some people to vote. Those eight words will mean any will mean more than anything I say to you on this interview. So that's what this is. Well, and you know, the thing is, well, I mean, you know, there there is a lot of focus from, you know, some groups who are saying, well, okay, make a carve out in the filibuster for voting rights legislation. However, we've just had this another massacre. We've had two massacres in two weeks, um, both in Georgia and now in Colorado. Um, you've got the For the People Act, which you just mentioned. You've got this Background Checks Act that's passed the House. You've got enhanced background checks. You've got the George Floyd Justin Please. There are so many bills piled up. And I'm old enough to remember that when Mitch McConnell was in the minority during the Obama administration, he used the filibuster to pretty much bring the Senate to a halt. And you've got, and there's a great piece in the Atlantic, which talks about the fact that basically the filibuster means there's no accountability. Just threatening a filibuster can just kill any bill in advance before there's any debate. Mitch McConnell is demanding that it stay that way. Uh, Why would any Democrat go along with that? Can you explain why some of these conservative Democrats want it to stay that way? On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. I think, first of all, you know, Joy, there's a whole bunch of people that want to see a change. And even Senator Manchin has talked about bringing in a talking filibuster, which would force them to actually have to, and like in the movies, speak instead of just hiding back in their offices or going home and stopping a bill. And I think what has happened here is that people have realized in stark terms, if January 6th didn't turn you, I don't know what does. There are people that literally are trying to upend our democracy, that don't believe in people's right to vote, that only believe in some people's right to vote, and that's not what America is about. Uh, In the words of the African-American police officer, who after being pummeled with poles, turns to his friend uh, and said, is this America? It's not. And so that's why it's so important that we pass this bill. And that will allow us, by the way, to do a bunch of other really important things for this country. And I think the proof is in the America Rescue Plan. 
a bunch of those, none of those Republicans voted for it in the U.S. Senate, but a bunch of the Republican constituents and Democrats wanted it. And right. to get it done, we did it with a 51-vote margin, and it worked. The, the, what do you think, you know these guys, uh, the Joe Mansions, the Kristen Cinemas. Uh, what do you think the trigger might be for them? Because you had something that finally said to you, we've got to change this. In Just in speaking with your conservative colleagues, on the Democratic side. What do you think it will take? Is it going to take all of these bills failing on the floor to get cloture over and over, voting rights, gun reform, and all of it failing, even, you know, transportation and and all of those bills? Do you think it's going to take those bills actually failing before they change their minds? Um, I don't. You'd have to ask them. And I will say Senator Manchin is one of the authors, as you know, of the background check bill, uh, that almost passed before. So they understand what the stakes are. And Senator Cinema understands the stakes in her state in Arizona when it comes to economics and climate change and the like. And so I, I believe that we need to get this bill to the floor. And we need people to understand that there are people yeah. in our country that are literally trying to make it impossible for them to vote by mail. Why did all these people vote in the middle of a public health crisis? Because for the first time in many states, you could vote by mail. You didn't have to have yeah. a yeah. notary public, notary public sign things. And they're literally trying to peel that back. And I think we're going to have such a strong case to make for the public uh, that you'll see movement on our side. Very quickly, before I let you go, um, your thoughts very quickly on the Derek Chauvin trial. Do you think that uh, do you expect justice in this case? You've been a prosecutor in that state. Do you expect? What, yeah, what do you well, think? I think you know where I am on this case. I've been very clear uh, that that I felt those prosecutions had to be brought. I have faith in our attorney general, uh, Keith Ellison. Uh, they've got good lawyers on the case. And I always believe that you you uh, let the evidence speak for itself in the middle of a trial. And um, but right now the jurors have been picked and the trial is going to start. And for me, my piece of it, um, it's not the trial because I won't be in the courtroom. My piece of it is what you mentioned, Joy, and that's in my role on the Judiciary Committee to get the George Floyd Justice yeah. and Policing Act done. Yeah. Senator Amy Klobuchar, thank you so much for your time this evening. Really appreciate All it. All right. And up next, cheers. The tear gassing of peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters and the Capitol insurrection have breathed new life into Washington, D.C.'s push for statehood. Mayor Muriel Bowser will be here to tell us why making D.C. a state is more important than ever. We'll be right back. More than 700,000 people live in Washington, D.C. And as their license plate aptly points out, they have exactly what the country was founded against, taxation without representation. With no senators and only one delegate in the House who isn't even able to vote on bills, D.C. also isn't able to entirely make its own decisions. For example, during the Capitol siege, the D.C. National Guard had troops ready to deploy immediately, but it took more than three hours for the Defense Department to give the green light. Not surprisingly, there's a history of racism behind D.C.'s second-class status. For almost a full century, D.C. residents were not able to elect their own leaders. And in a survey conducted by the Washington Post in 1966 on reversing that restriction, white D.C. residents clearly articulated the racism behind their opposition, saying things like, it isn't right that the nation's capital be all colored, and they don't have the right education to do the right job. And while D.C., a city that's currently 46% black, now can elect its own leaders. The opposition from Republicans against statehood has echoed those past concerns. 
such as when Republican congressman, when a Republican congressman in 2013 said D.C. wasn't ready to be a state, comparing its leaders to teenagers. That Republican opposition was very much on display yesterday as the House held a hearing on statehood with Republicans using the excuse of how Democratic D.C. is. Only 5% of D.C. residents voted for Trump in 2020. But beyond the GOP's open fears about a D.C. state adding to a Democratic Senate, they're left with ridiculous excuses. Take this argument from a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation at yesterday's hearing. There's no question that D.C. residents already impact the national debate. For the members here today, how many of you saw D.C. statehood yard signs or bumper stickers or banners on your way to this hearing today? I certainly did. Where else in the nation could some, such simple actions reach so many members of Congress? Yeah, okay, Captain, because the ability to have yard signs in your yard is exactly the same as having two senators to represent you. Okay. And then there was the Georgia, this Georgia congressman. D.C. would be the only state, the only state without an airport, without a car dealership, without a capital city, without a landfill. Okay, actually, D.C. does have multiple car dealerships, but even if it didn't, I can assure you that the Founding Fathers did not include that as a requirement in the U.S. Constitution. With me now is Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. Uh, Mayor Bowser, it, the, 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 the arguments were, were dumb, uh, just to be honest. You know, the Heritage Foundation, fresh off bouncing its first black and black, black woman um, leader, uh, had some pretty silly arguments. But let me play, yeah, read you one more. Here's Mike Rounds of South Dakota saying the Founding Fathers never intended Washington, D.C. to be a state. By the way, there's a re the reason there are two Dakotas is because they were deliberately created as two different states so that Republicans could literally have four senators. Your thoughts on these arguments against D.C. statehood? Well, Joy, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Their arguments are, they're stupid. Uh, and they show that they have run out of, and we have debunked all of the arguments they used to use against us. It's not constitutional. Well, H.R. 51 makes clear we're still going to have a federal district. Uh, we're too small. We're bigger than two states and almost as big as seven. Uh, we, we can't govern ourselves. And we have one of the best run jurisdictions, great economy, and economies coming back. Uh, of, of all the jurisdictions in the nation. So we're very proud of what we can do. So they're left with their simple partisan arguments that I argued yesterday were rooted in the history of uh, race. Uh, and it is a demonstration that people have long been concerned about the black political power uh, that we've developed in Washington, D.C., yeah, you talked about the size of the state. Let's just put this up for everyone to look at. Washington, D.C. would sit sort of in the middle of some of the smaller states. South Dakota barely has more people than Washington, D.C. North Dakota, again, these were supposed to be one state, but they made them two so that they could have four senators. They're just above D.C. And then Vermont and Wyoming actually have fewer people. They all have two senators. What do you make of the attempt by one uh, of the people arguing against statehood saying, what if we lowered your taxes? What if we just gave you lower taxes? Would that be enough? 
Well, you know, Joy, uh, the people of Washington, D.C. voted on statehood. Uh, they didn't vote to succeed from the union. Uh, they didn't vote to shirk their taxes. Uh, they just voted to say that we need equal representation and full autonomy. Uh, we need two senators. Uh, you rightly pointed out the ridiculous argument that people can put up yard signs and that's the same as having two senators. It's not. The people of Washington, D.C. saw what can happen when we have nobody arguing for us in the Senate in the CARES package. Uh, we were shorted $755 million, three quarters of a billion dollars to respond uh, to a global pandemic. That is what it means not to be represented in the Senate. We saw Donald Trump attempt to overtake our police department. That's what it means not to have full autonomy. And the only way we can achieve those things is through statehood. We're full taxpaying Americans, just like New Yorkers, just like Californians just like South Dakotans, except we don't have two senators. And we have to correct that wrong. What might have been different on January 6th if D.C. had been a state in terms of your ability to react? Uh, the, you, the big difference is that uh, the D.C. National Guard, which is not actually the D.C. National Guard, it's the President's Guard. Uh, the D.C. National Guard reports to the President of the United States. Uh, and we know uh, that there were some delays uh, in his approval of the Guard being deployed uh, to the Capitol building. We already had requested the Guard uh, to support D.C. streets and keep D.C. streets safe. Uh, I would have immediately deployed the guard that were working with my police department uh, to the Capitol, and you would not have seen that three-hour delay. And would you want to see the filibuster ended? Because that seems to be the only way that D.C. is going to be able to get statehood. I, I support uh, what how Senator Schumer is going to get this bill through. Uh, we make the argument, Joy, that this is as much a void voting rights issue as all the voter suppression that we see around the country. 712,000 taxpaying Americans don't have a, representative, a voting representative in Congress and no senators. Uh, and that is, in our view, a civil rights and voting rights issue that should be undertaken with H.R. 1. Yeah, but we will see what happens. Uh, we're definitely going to be looking, uh, keeping our eyes on this one. It's an important issue. Mayor Muriel Bowser, thank you so much for being here. And before we go, the sports world lost a legend yesterday. NBA Hall of Famer Elgin Baylor played 14 seasons with the Lakers beginning in 1958. The New York Times noted his acrobatic brilliance foreshadowed the athleticism of later generations of stars. In a statement, the Lakers CEO said Elgin was the superstar of his era. Only three players have ever scored more points in a single game. David Thompson, Wilt Chamberman, and Kobe Bryant. He was later an executive with the L.A. Clippers. Elgin Baylor died Monday with his wife and daughter by his side. And deepest condolences to them. He was 86 years old. That is tonight's readout. Um, and before we go to this, and I, this is a hard turn, I just want to wish my bestie, uh, uh, Kim McRae, a very happy birthday. It's her birthday today. So I told her I was going to give her a shout out. So that is my hard turn. That is my shout out. So with every sort of sad and difficult story that we have, uh, we also want to have something positive. So happy birthday, Kim. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. 
That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.